Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a food patriot to the natural world, and a person who occasionally participates in the world's oldest profession. This is what we're going to be talking about today. In studio with us is Maria Westerly. Maria has a Four Seasons Foraging. Good morning. Welcome. Good morning. And joining us by phone is Samuel Thayer. He's the author of three books, Foraging Harvest, Nature's Garden, a Guide to Identifying, Harvesting, and Preparing Edible Wild Plants, Incredible Wild Edibles, 36 Plants That Can Change Your Life. Um, So author of the three books. Um, So welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you. It's great to be here. Glad to be here. Um, And so you started, you mentioned that in in your book, Samuel, that uh, foraging is really the world's oldest um, profession. Yeah, indeed. I mean, we've been foraging for uh, longer than we've been human beings, so it's been going on quite a while. And what was your what's your basic story? Tell tell your story of how you got into foraging. Uh, you know, I was hungry as a child, <laughs> and I didn't really separate foraging from stealing from my neighbor's garden. And I just it was a way to get free food. Uh, and later on, when I was maybe. 11 or 12, I discovered there was books about this topic, and um, I was just like, wow, I I can eat more than these 16 plants that I learned, you know, uh, just on the fly from relatives or whoever would tell me something, Um, and that opened up this world to me where all of a sudden I I could read books, I could read plant identification books, I could figure out what things were, I could know if you could eat them or not, and it was so exciting to me Mm. but i stayed hungry i get hungry every single day (laughs) (laughs) and you're sort of a self-reliant person i love this i'm I'm a quote from your book in the introduction today hunting and gathering is a way of life for me wild grains teas nuts fruit juices berries flowers and vegetables are stored away for the seasons and every day at almost every meal i eat something that was a gift of unbroken land in a simple cabin at the edge of the woods along a dead end country road i'm exactly where i always wanted to be yeah i'm in i'm in a different cabin now. <laughs> uh, but um i would I, I think my life uh, one great advantage that i've had in my life um i've realized as i've gotten older is continuity of interest i'm interested mm. in the same things now that i was when i was six or seven and um i hope that i'm doing all the same things uh 20 years from now uh, just more of it and hopefully a little better. Uh, you know, I have I have about 60 gallons of hickory nuts to make into oil, so I have foraging stuff to do all winter long. Nice. Wow. that's So, um, Maria, you are local. Sam is in Wisconsin, and you're here in the Twin Cities, and yep. you have four seasons foraging. Yeah, four season foraging. Four season foraging. Yes. So what's your personal story? Well, it's nearly the opposite of Sam's. Um, I grew up in inner city Milwaukee. I never really, you know, had much exposure to wilderness areas. Didn't really do any camping or anything until I left home um, to go to college when I was 18. And it was around that time that I started getting interested in um, traditional skills, things like foraging, um, herbal medicine, uh, you know, making baskets and that kind of thing. And it was just from a desire to connect more to the non-human world and to be more sustainable and self-reliant. And yeah, I just basically got some field guides and started going out into the woods and, you know, parks and just like down the street and (laughs) identifying things and picking them and eating them. And, uh, and I actually, Um, After a year, I dropped out of school and just went traveling, like hitchhiking around the country with some friends of mine. And we were just, you know, doing a lot of camping and a lot of eating of wild edibles and, you know, reading of, you know, we just had some like basic Peterson's field guide um, that we would use to experiment with different edible plants. So that's how it started for me. Cool. Now, um, but eating from the wild, that's really dangerous, right? Not as dangerous as people make it. (laughs) Seem, <laughs> you know, um, I'm not sure if you said that facetiously or not, but one of the things I try to tell people is um, how exceedingly safe it really is. It's hard to find any outdoor activity that it could be construed as safer. I mean, I've searched really long and hard 
for cases of serious poisonings or um, even fatal poisonings. And fatal poisonings that could be attributed to foraging occur at a rate of about uh, one to three per decade in North America. That would be plant foraging. With mushroom foraging, it's more like one to five per year. Okay. Um, but even your book, you do say if you have to rely on a book for um, for foraging, that's not really the place to start. It's just looking at a book. So how should someone start learning about foraging? What are the steps? Well, I started from a book. <laughs> um, but looking back, it's like, yeah, it was kind of stop and go. And the books I was using at first, um, I mean, as Sam will tell you, the resources that are out there of varying quality. Like some books are really great and have a lot of information, are very accurate, and some books are just like not that. And you know, it's just authors like repeating what other authors have written and maybe mis even misidentifying plants sometimes. Um, so I just started out, like I said, with some basic field guide, and it wasn't really the best thing. But through experience, I was able to learn. Um, and Sam, I'm sure you'll have an idea and a good field guide for people. Yeah, well, uh, to add to what Maria said, um, you know, books are not necessarily the best way to start, but oftentimes they're the only way to start. And so, in you know, uh, go for it. Um, you know, if you use common sense, you're you're going to be fine. Um, you just follow the basic rule of you don't eat something if you don't know what it is, and. It sounds obvious, and it is, but when there is a plant or mushroom poisoning, it is almost always the result of somebody just ignoring that basic rule. Don't eat something if you don't know what it is. Yeah. Um, and I recommend to people, um, you know, get several books. Um, you know, there's not one book called How to Be Healthy or How to Be a Doctor that's going to cover everything you would need to know. You know, build your library of resources over time. Everyone that I know that's into foraging has six or eight or 12 or 30 books. Um, there's a lot to know. Um, but just go one plant at a time. And you don't need to know the whole language and the whole repertoire. You just need one, and then you can use it. Yeah, and I would add to that, too, like, YouTube can be a great resource. Um, like, back when I was starting, there wasn't a lot of foraging information on the Internet. Like, you know, this was, like, 15 years ago or something. Um, but now there's tons of information out there. And, again, you have to make sure it's from a trusted source because some of these things that are out there aren't accurate. But by and large, there's a wealth of information that you can tap into. And Maria, you offer local classes. And we're intentionally doing this story in January because um, you're going to have a winter foraging class coming up here. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I'm doing an evergreen foraging class with Ingebretsons, which is a local um, Scandinavian store in Minneapolis. Um, so I did this class last year in December, and it went really well. Um, the class was full. There's people on the waiting list. Like basically, what we did was uh, most of the class was spent in the kitchen. So we were like cooking with evergreens, and then for part of the class, we went out and looked at the actual trees to learn how to identify them. Um, we won't be doing that this year. It'll be all indoors. I'll have pictures and you know twigs and samples and that kind of thing, but. Um, yeah, a lot of evergreens are edible, and people don't, a lot of people don't realize this, and it's something that has traditionally been used for, uh, during the winter months, to get vitamin C, vitamin A, uh, for something to treat coughs and colds and, you know, prevent sickness and that kind of thing. So Samuel Thayer in, um, in Wisconsin, uh, what are you doing in the winter in terms of foraging? I don't do a lot of foraging in the winter. I do a lot of processing of things that I have foraged in the fall. So okay. um, we I, we probably eat more wild food in the winter than any other time of year, calorie-wise, because we're focused on preparation. Um, so, you know, we, I gather large amounts of acorns and hickory nuts and hazelnuts, and, you know, my wild rice is generally processed in the, not in the winter. Um, but so there's all kinds of that work to do, and just cooking and enjoying all the stuff that we've collected and stored. Um, I do collect you know, some evergreen products during the winter. And, you know, like I collect chaga and some other fungi. But I don't harvest a whole lot in the winter. But you don't have to go too far south to, 
where, wherever the ground isn't frozen, there are lots and lots of root vegetables to collect all winter long. So, cool. There's still a lot. To I, I tried the acorn. Tried making acorn flour once. It was a complete and total disaster. Oh, no. <laughs> so, what are your steps? How did you? How did you? Uh, how did you do your acorns? You know, there's a lot of ways to prepare acorns, and it can definitely be a disaster. And I've tasted a few of my own disasters and a lot of other people's disasters. <laughs> but the, the traditional preparation methods that Native people used on this continent, if followed accurately, will make a pretty darn good food product. Um, so you need so a nice running a, creek with clean water. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's there's adaptations to it that work really well. So um, I like... Uh, a finely ground flour leach in cold water, and I've made uh, a leaching tray that I line with a cloth, and I put the finely ground acorn flour in there and then percolate water through it somewhere between three and six times. Um, and it depends. The, the biggest factor is how uniformly fine you can get that flour. Mm. Um, if you want to leach the acorn in boiling water, you can do that on the wood stove, and we occasionally do that. Um, but you want larger chunks so they don't, like, just dissolve into the liquid. You get a very different product from the cold leaching versus the hot leaching. So we're going to need to take a break, and we're talking all about the world's oldest profession, which is foraging. Foraging is the world's oldest profession. And with us is Samuel Thayer. He's on the phone. Um, he's written several books, including The Forager's Harvest, and uh, Maria Westerly uh, from uh, the Twin Cities with Four Season Foraging. Satisfy my soul, babe. Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at seward.coo. Supporting the best local and independently owned restaurants in the Twin Cities has never been easier. You'll find an expansive list of local dining options at eatlocalminnesota.com from classic American comfort food to authentic flavors from around the world. Cafe Latte offers made-from-scratch soups, salads, sandwiches, and mouth-watering desserts. Stop in the wine bar and enjoy a unique pizza loaded with fresh vegetables and perfectly roasted meats. Over 30 wines by the glass, Cafe Latte highlights Washington State wines and is the perfect destination for date night or an evening with friends. 850 Grand Avenue, St. Paul. Victor's 1959 Cafe has been serving South Minneapolis traditional Cuban food for over 15 years. Victor's is open for breakfast and lunch daily and now accepts dinner reservations too. Stop in and try the Pollo Tropicale or the Sandwich Cubano, which was featured on Food Network. More at eatlocalminnesota.com. This is New Beginnings, hosted by award-winning broadcaster and speaker, Freddie Bell. Freddie, this generation of the baby boomers, people are living longer, so the baby boomers are taking care of elderly parents. Let's talk about your health, and specifically, let's talk about Medicare. Our show features the concerns of America's 78 million baby boomers in employment, finance, health and nutrition, and even entertainment. Catch New Beginnings with Freddie Bell, Saturdays at 11 on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Hi, Matt McNeil for Rudy Luther Toyota. With the road trips we took in December, we're glad we took them in our Toyota Sienna. Whether they're family, friends, or get-togethers, the Sienna was always the most comfortable way to drive. Plenty of room for all the stuff we needed to take with us, the safety and reliability you get with a Sienna, the extras which make road trips easy, and the room to stretch on out. Rudy Luther Toyota Siennas are the most fun, safe, and reliable vehicles we've ever driven. Test drive one yourself at Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Tap, taste, and treasure at Vinaigrette, where we have some warm seasonal recipes all ready to create dynamite meals. Our fig balsamic vinegar pairs perfectly with roasted Brussels sprouts or baked brie. And sweet potatoes are always a winner, but never more than when they're roasted with a drizzle of vinaigrette cinnamon or orange-fused extra virgin olive oil on top. Come in today for more custom-crafted food and cocktail recipes at Vinaigrette, 50th and Xerxes in Minneapolis, and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior. Online at vinaigrettemn.com. Welcome back to 
Food Freedom Radio, where we plant to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, and with us in studio is Maria Wesserly. She has four season foraging here in the Twin Cities. And joining us by phone is Samuel Thayer, author of three books, including The Forager's Harvest. And Sam, on your website, um, your headline is Connecting People and Nature Through the Ancient Af- Craft of Foraging. What does this mean, this connection? Well, you know, we are part of nature, although we often don't believe we are, or we don't think about what that means that we are. Um, And I feel like uh, we reach our greatest level of personal satisfaction and mental and physical health when we have this intimate relationship to nature that really um, foraging epitomizes it. Or I could say that foraging is most of that relationship. And when we don't have that relationship, we become disconnected. We don't care about nature. And we can't know very much. We can't know nature on a personal level. Um, And you can't care about or love or protect something that you don't know. So I think it's really important for our personal reasons and for ecological reasons um, to, to maintain that relationship with nature through foraging. And there's other ways to have that relationship, but I think foraging is is the most effective way and for most of human history has been the primary way. Right. It's a relationship we have with our food. Food nourishes us. How do we nourish food? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I agree with a lot of that. And um, a lot of the questions I get about foraging are about the sustainability of it and, you know, people being concerned about over-harvesting and you know, ruining the ecology and that kind of thing, which is a valid concern. And you want to be careful about how much you harvest, especially of like delicate native plants, Um, maybe not even harvest those at all. But um, like Sam was saying, we are part of nature. And this view that we shouldn't go out and pick things is a view that humans are separate from nature. So we need to leave it alone. Like the less we touch it, the better. Um, And yeah, I just don't, agree with that i think that the more yeah. we interact with it the more we feel for it and protect it exactly i've been meaning to verify it but i think it's i think this is true someone shared with me that there is three times as much land in the united states plat- planted in uh bluegrass grass in residential yards than there are planted in corn and soybeans wow and so and you think of all the pesticides and fertilizers and how bad that is for the water and the pollinators and it, it, if we would make a shift mm-hmm. to reciprocal relationships with nature wow that'd be kind of fun <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely yeah, the other thing I was caught is, you know, we used to, humans once believed that the earth was the center of the universe. And I think when we're in a place like land, sometimes we get confused and we think humans are the center of the land rather than participating in an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So when we can actually be out and foraging or, you know, um, taking food, putting it in our mouth, digesting it, um, there's um, a fundamental essence of that that is actually quite lovely and beautiful. You know, I um, I really sympathize with the the worry, the concern that people have about sustainability with foraging. But I think people often frame it the wrong way because the act of gathering food creates gratitude. And gratitude is an instinct. It's like fear of the dark. Everybody experiences it under certain circumstances. It's like being scared by thunder. And when you put someone in a circumstance where they gather, they cannot help but experience gratitude. And gratitude is the instinct that tells us to think beyond ourselves, think about the bigger picture. That's why I think that foraging is so important. And we see again and again and again that the people who are engaged in using a plant, gathering the plant, they're the ones who protect it. They're the ones who care about it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I really feel like people are missing that connection. People who don't have it don't even know quite what they're missing. I, I, I love that saying, gratitude is an instinct. I think you're spot on with that. And yet we can also look at the tragic history, like the history of ginseng um, mm-hmm. and what did happen to the ginseng um, here. And Samuel, Samuel, do you know the, the history of ginseng? Um, a, a, a fair amount. Um, and, you know, 
it, it, it's a little bit of, a, of an anomalous situation because it was almost all for market collecting, um, not, not people collecting ginseng for their own use. But the other interesting aspect of the ginseng history is that in those parts of the country where people intended to make their living from ginseng over the long term, they still have ginseng. So I was camping in Georgia hmm. a couple of years ago, and I was shocked to see ginseng growing between the campsites in a public campground, hmm. hundreds of ginseng plants. Um, but when Wisconsin and Minnesota were settled, the farmers who settled here intended to pay for their property with ginseng, and they didn't care if that ginseng persisted, and so they liquidated it in much of the Midwest. Um, so it was kind of a different history, and I think even though it seems like a case where oh, this is what can happen when people over-harvest or when people don't care, it, it shows the difference between that collection for personal use or with a long-term view and collecting with a commercial-only view and not thinking about the long-term. That's fascinating. I mean, uh, it'd be wonderful if people would get together and try to plant and restore the ginseng that was here. Mm -hmm. Do you know, are, are anyone, are people trying to do that anywhere? A lot of people are on their own property, and they're managing it on their own property, but they're not telling anyone they're doing it. Right, which because, is smart. Yeah, at $1,500 a pound, you know, some, I mean, someone's going to sneak in and steal it, and that's the big problem with, with ginseng is people try to manage ginseng on their property and someone figures it out. I mean, there's, there's a lot of these ginseng harvesters, they're traipsing across public property or private property when it's rainy and nobody's outside and monitoring everyone else's ginseng and then taking it when it's at a certain stage. Oh, that is sad. That is sad. So let's talk about the, the principles of, um, so, so, so what I'm hearing is a huge distinction between foraging as a way of life and the extractive foraging, the commercialization or marketing. There's, there's a difference between those two. Is that, that what we're... Yeah. Well, you can do anything irresponsibly. And, um, and, you know, you can forage irresponsibly, but I feel like the natural tendency of the forager is to, through gratitude, develop a responsible attitude towards foraging. I don't know foragers that I consider, oh, that's, that's a real jerk who doesn't care. Everybody that I meet who's really into foraging for their personal use develops that attitude of, of gratitude. Yeah, I mean, you hear horror stories of, you know, people digging up all the echinacea or people, you know, breaking branches to get berries and wounding the tree. And, um, yeah, like Sam says, I don't personally know anyone like that. I've heard concerns. Um, I know that there's, you know, some species that are being harvested, especially for uh, market purposes that are in decline, like wild leeks or ramps, for example, and, you know, fiddlehead ferns. Those are all popular in restaurants and becoming popular in, you know, farmers markets and grocery stores. So, um, but in general, yeah, I believe that foraging connects you to nature and encourages you to protect it. Great. We're talking all things foraging. Uh, with us in studio is Maria Westerly, and she's with Forward Season Foraging. And joining us by phone is Samuel Thayer, um, author of several books, including The Forager's Harvest. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Tap, taste, and treasure at Vinaigrette, where we have some warm seasonal recipes all ready to create dynamite meals. Our fig balsamic vinegar pairs perfectly with roasted Brussels sprouts or baked brie. And sweet potatoes are always a winner, but never more than when they're roasted with a drizzle of vinaigrette cinnamon or orange-fused extra virgin olive oil on top. Come in today for more custom-crafted food and cocktail recipes at Vinaigrette, 50th and Xerxes in Minneapolis and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior. Online at vinaigrettemn.com. Total Dog Company exists for people who are serious about their dogs. People who want the best nutrition and the best gear for their dogs. Total Dog Company's mission is to provide high-quality, practical food and gear for dogs and only dogs. Nothing frou-frou or frivolous. Nothing with suspect ingredients. No cat food or wild bird food. Totally dog. From head to wagging tail. Find us in New Hope off of 169 at 9432 36th Avenue North and at TotalDogCompany.com. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works 
LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. Tom Hartman here telling you that solar energy isn't just for environmentalists. Switching to all energy solar is actually perfect for reducing your carbon footprint while also saving money on your monthly electric bill. The fact that solar panels cause no earth-harming emissions while it's producing energy is a bonus. Who in the world could object to that? But they can also help you save money month after month for decades. And they do it with a clean footprint. So go green and start saving money today by visiting allenergysolar.com. We are given the gift of intuition on how to care for ourselves and our families. But too often we forsake that knowledge for the voice of authority. Green Tea Conversations is a radio show for people like you who are on a journey to take responsibility for their health and who want to play a more active role in their family's well-being. I'm your host, Candy Brothel, publisher of the Twin Cities edition of Natural Awakenings magazine, and I'm excited to bring Green Tea Conversations into your home. Join me every Sunday at 10 a.m. as I interview local experts straight from the pages of Natural Awakenings who will share progressive ideas in the latest natural approaches in nutrition, fitness, creative expression, personal growth, and sustainable living in a fun and informative way. Podcasts of the show are available anytime at naturaltwincities.com, am950radio.com, on iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. So grab a cup of tea and join the conversations on Sundays at 10 a.m. as we awaken to natural health. With your AM 950 weather, I'm Hunter Hawes. Saturday, sunny with a high near 9. Sunday, chance of snow, mostly cloudy with a high near 12. And Monday, cloudy with a high near 21. Standard Heating is celebrating 89 years of business this January. And you can save over $1,900 on a high-efficiency furnace and AC or boiler. Find more anniversary savings at standardheatingdeals.com. Standard heating and air conditioning comfort you deserve. to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund and in studio, Maria Wesserly with Four Season Foraging. You can find out more information about her at fourseasonforaging.com. And also Samuel Thayer um, from uh, Wisconsin is joining us by phone. And you can get more information from he- about him at foragingforestersharvest.com. You know, are there some things to forage that can really help the ecology? Garlic mustard? There are things to forage that we should be foraging that would help the ecology of our urban areas? Uh, yeah, there's certainly quite a lot of invasive species that are edible. Garlic mustard, for example. Um, autumn olive is another one that's highly invasive. Um, and there's other plants that are, you know, they're not native, but they... To me, they would be considered naturalized, like things like dandelion or... Um, Queen Anne's lace or, um, you know, like just common weeds that you find in your yard, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> um, which I know some people consider invasive or are considered invasive in some states, but in some areas they see more naturalized. And, you know, if they're not taking over like healthy ecosystems, then I don't really see them as a big problem. Um, but with something like garlic mustard, it does actually invade forests and it will take over to the point where it's like, I've read up to 70% of the plant life in a forest. There's more garlic mustard growing in our parks here, and the the parks would love you to harvest. I know I I participated a little bit in Dakota County in Lebanon Hills. We did a training, because a lot of the parks, they don't want people to go into the um, parks. So, Samuel Thayer, do you know what the rules are in terms of public parks and uh, in terms of gathering food? I mean, I know the garlic mustard... It it, it really depends on where you are um and and i mean like for example wisconsin and minnesota allow collecting of seeds fruits or, or sorry, fruits nuts berries and mushrooms in their state parks um not greenery or roots um it, so it really depends on on where you are and there's a lot of like gray areas like a vacant lot in the city or a city a weedy plant in a city park i don't know what the rules are 
I will grab something if I'm hungry, and <laughs> no one seems to care. So a big a big part of this is like be reasonable. I mean, is there a park employee in St. Paul who's going to be angry if someone is, eats a few dandelion heads or or you know? I don't think so. Um, mm. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to say yes, there are. <laughs> yeah, there, 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 there may be somewhere. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure there is somewhere, but I'm, I'm going to say that, that 99 out of 100 or more, are. that's not something they're concerned about. Um, but, uh, you know, and it, it, so it, 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 it's, it's very much like, like foraging itself in terms of what's responsible it's on a case-by-case basis, you know. There's certain species that I collect, but in a certain circumstance, I would say, oh, don't touch that here. Um, and, you know, the, the same thing. I mean, it's legal to collect blackberries on the side of the road and it's on a small rural road, but I may say, well, this landowner is ornery. I'm not collecting here. Um, so it, it's, uh, it, it's, not a, it's, it's not high on my concern list. Yeah, I mean, I would say for the city parks, though, um, people do actually get fined for harvesting from city parks. Um, in St. Paul, it's completely illegal to harvest anything. Even, like, picking a leaf off a tree is illegal, technically. Um, and in Minneapolis, it was the same way until very recently. Just a few months ago, they passed a law making, um, I think it's, like, nine species of fruits and nuts that you can now legally harvest in most of the Minneapolis parks or some areas they don't want you to forage in because they're um, they might be like a protected ecosystem like the Eloise Butler wildflower garden or it might be a planted area like the rose garden um, but no people are pretty serious about it uh, <laughs> yeah. you know I've gotten in trouble before just trying to hold workshops where we're not even foraging anything we're just talking about things that are edible and like they don't want that even um in a lot of places so um that said i have done a garlic mustard workshop with the um minneapolis park system which was really great like we you know got to go out and pick tons of this invasive plant and then we went into a kitchen area and cooked with it and made we should do that. We should do that this spring because I know they'll be excited about the because the garlic mustard is really pro posing a lot of problems. So, mm -hmm. how do you cook garlic mustard? I mean, that's something that we really have. For those who think there's a lot of dandelions, there is actually a bigger problem with garlic mustard than there is dandelions. So, um, Samuel, you want to talk about what garlic mustard is and what people can do with it? Well, you know, I like garlic mustard as a vegetable at a certain stage when it's like. 8 to 12 inches tall before it blooms. I really like the stalks, and I will, I will often peel the leaves off the stalk and use it in soup. A lot of people use the leaves for pesto, and it's great, um, but it, they're more of a flavoring. They're very strong. It's hard to eat a large quantity of it. If you want to combine mass destruction of garlic mustard with a meal, I think the best thing to focus on is those, those very tender young shoots. Um, and that's usually in the Twin Cities area, like about the 5th to the 15th of May, uh, about about 10 days before peak bloom. And, um, you know, there's something like at that time of year in my foraging workshops, I, I'll tell people I have two particular places I do workshops every year, and I say to people, okay, this is part of foraging. We're going to spend 20 minutes here, and we are going to pull garlic mustard. That's all we're going to do, and we're going to pile it here, and, and then we'll remove it in mass when we're done because that's part of responsible foraging. And I get to show people these are all the plants that this garlic mustard is going to crowd out if we don't do this, and the park departments certainly aren't doing it. No, there's, it's a lot of work for the park departments and, and trying to find that coordinated effort between people and park and, and how we, um, I, I mean, the separation that we have from nature is such a part of our culture that, you know, in, in, in parks where it's like, here's the park and he, this is where I go to be outside and this is, I go to the store to eat at this. <laughs> so it's how to end the separation and sort of meld in a way. <laughs> I know, I'm like a pause there. So uh, let's get to something basic. Um, so are there some things that are dangerous to eat that you really should avoid? I mean, I remember hearing something about a poisonous less look-alike that's kind of taken over invasively. Do you know about that, Samuel? A lettuce look-alike. Um, I haven't heard of, of that. Um, it's hard for me to know when people use the word look-alike, you know, 
people construe different plants as looking similar. Um, but really, um, you need to know what something is, um, and then it's safe to eat if, if it's an if it's an edible plant you're using at the right stage. Um, I don't really believe in these broad general rules about uh, groups that are and aren't safe. Some people will say avoid the carrot family, um, you know, and then you've eliminated 10% of the wild edibles in the temperate world. Hmm. Um, and and so avoid the poisonous members of the carrot family. And if you don't know what any particular plant is, you don't, nobody has business eating it anyways. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, it's, I mean, it's really on a case-by-case basis. And, and all, all the serious plant poisonings in North America that I have found are attributed to just, like, four or five species. Um, you know, poison hemlock, water hemlock, and foxglove uh, digitalis. Those are, those are the only ones that I have found that have had very serious or fatal poisonings in North America in the last 50 years. Yeah, and I think... Um you mentioning the carrot family just reminds me of when I was first learning to identify Queen Anzales, and um, which is basically the wild version of carrot. Like you can eat the root, um, you can use the seeds for seasoning. Uh, you can even eat the flower and the stem, and you know use the leaves for seasoning if you want. Um, but there's just all these dire warnings about. You know, Queen Anzalis looks exactly like poison hemlock, and you're going to confuse the two, and, like, you have to be a very experienced forager to eat this. And so I was, like, very, very cautious about eating this plant. Um, but then when I finally saw poison hemlock, I was like, oh, I would never mistake that for Queen Anzalis. <laughs> like, um, and I know... I don't want to make it sound like overly simple because I know like when some people are first starting out, it can be easy to, you know, see a plant with a big white... Um, flower and you know feathery leaves and say like oh that's queen anzalis like even though it could be any number of carrot family species um but it's not like you have to get a phd in botany to be able to distinguish the two you know it's just follow a few simple guidelines and you're fine so so, yeah where, where people run into trouble is when they don't try to identify the plant when they simply think that looks like maybe it's such and such, and then they go eat it. Mm-hmm. When you look in the case histories of plant poisonings and mushroom poisonings, virtually all of them follow that pattern. It's typically males between the ages of 15 and 40, the same, the same demographic that gets most of the rattlesnake bites, and it's not <laughs> coincidence, the same demographic that has the cliff diving accidents, the same demographic that gets into fights, right? It, I mean, it's, it's, it's brash ridiculous behavior. People who say, hey, that, that looks like such and such. I want to show off to someone by eating it. And eat the plant having no idea what it is. That accounts for almost all of the you know, supposed misidentifications. I'm not saying you can't misidentify a plant, but you have so many opportunities to not poison yourself. I mean, and I think Maria and I and other people that teach about this topic, we find ourselves assuaging people's fears again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And it's fears of things that almost never happen. I mean, I, I used to be a very avid bicyclist, and I've been hospitalized, and I've had to pay more than $15,000 for bicycle-related injuries. And almost every serious bicyclist I know has had an accident or has been hospitalized, and hundreds die every year. Um, and yet people don't have that fear associated with bicycling or horseback riding, for that matter. Um, but this fear that follows foraging around is completely disproportionate to the actual danger. As I said before, I think you can hardly find a safer activity. Because we've been doing this for hundreds of thousands of years, we have a set of instincts around it. Like, we're afraid of lions, roars, and big canine teeth because we have instincts telling us to. Not because we get killed by lions a lot. Um, I know that happened recently, but, um, you know, whereas with foraging, uh, we have all these instinctive fears that say, don't eat this plant if you don't know what it is. And for the people who forage, that comes out in a real healthy way. But for people who don't forage, it comes out in this irrational fear, like trying to bubble to the surface. When I like earlier when you said gratitude is also an instinct. And, and so what is the potential? What's the upside of foraging? Well, I think there's a lot of upsides. Um, 
foraged foods by and large are very healthy. You know, when you look at something like dandelion or nettle or lamb's quarters and compare the nutritional value of that to, um, you know, romaine lettuce or even kale or broccoli or, you know, something that is domesticated but has a high nutritional value, um, wild foods generally blow that out of the water. Um, and then, you know, as we've been touching on, there's the connection to the non-human world. Um, there's connection to other people. Like, for example, I've gone out in the city and just knocked on people's doors and said, like, hey, can I pick the mulberries in your yard? And, <laughs> you know, can I pick your dandelions? <laughs> it's like, um, it forges community, which is awesome. Forges community. So we're going to take a break. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio. We're talking about foraging. Minnesota's very best appliance shoppers choose Warner Stellion, home of the lowest price guarantee and trusted free services. Warner Stellion's in-store specialists will help you choose what's best for you. If it's worth considering, Warner Stellion has it. And now through the 23rd, we guarantee our price is lowest. Save more with our trusted free delivery, basic installation, haul-away, and no interest financing. Don't wait. Get in on special appliance savings now through January 23rd from Minnesota's own Warner Stellion. I'm Connie Burek, co-host of Awakened Living Infusion Radio Show. Join Michelle Kitzmiller and I as we focus on all aspects of health, wellness, spirituality, and growth from a mind, body, spirit, emotion perspective. On the Awakened Living Radio Show, we will discuss stress, self-care, fear, happiness, beliefs, communication, joy, pain, trauma, and more. Join us for the Awakened Living Infusion Radio Show Saturdays at 10 a.m. Let us share with you ways to infuse vitality into life. This is Chad, owner of AM950. I've been telling you about my friends at Snap Construction who are arguably the most well-reviewed exterior construction company in the metro. Don't just take my word for it. Take a look at all their reviews online. Winter is the most cost-effective time of the year to complete your construction project. A majority of Minnesotans choose to have their work completed on their home in the summer when they should be enjoying the weather. As a result, the demand for labor in the summer is much higher. The most cost-effective way to improve or restore your home is in the winter due to the lower demand. Right now, Snap Construction is offering an additional 30% off of labor to the AM950 listeners on your next construction project between now and the end of February. Call 612-333-SNAP and mention AM950 for an additional 30% off. As always, Snap Construction stands by their work with a lifetime craftsmanship warranty. Don't wait to get a free estimate by calling 612-333-SNAP or find them online at snapconstruction.com. Financing options available. Hi, this is Ken Hagland, host of the Minnesota Hospice and Healthcare Show, your source for elder care and caregiver solutions, inviting you to listen to our live call-in show airing on Saturdays from noon to one. Each week, we provide answers to important questions regarding elder care and caregiver issues to help you and your loved ones plan for the future and enjoy your best quality of life. Please join us this Saturday from noon to one for the Minnesota Hospice and Healthcare Show and learn more about us at minnesotahospice.com. Hey, it's Hunter from the brand new 4 o'clock program, the Minnesota Progressive Repartee. And if there's one thing y'all know that I always look forward to, it's a good party. And I couldn't be more excited for the 2019 Blue State Ball. Finally, a chance to celebrate the work we did destroying Trump and the Republicans and keeping Minnesota the true blue state. But come celebrate our victory with fellow progressives, radio hosts, and politicians at the 2019 Blue State Ball, Saturday, March 2nd at the Blaisdell in Minneapolis. Tickets available now at am950radio.com. Try to see it my way Do I have to keep on talking till I can go Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and with us in studio is Maria Westerly. She has four-season foraging here in the Twin Cities. And Samuel Thayer is joining us via phone um, from Wisconsin, and you can get information for him about his place at foragersharvest.com. And so both of you do um, trips. So one of the best ways for people to learn about foraging is with each with, is face-to-face, in-person, yes. actually doing it. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I started doing workshops maybe 10 years ago or something like that. Um, I was living in Michigan on a uh, farm and education center with a lot of like 300 acres or something like that. And there was a lot of opportunity for, well, for me personally to go foraging, but also to have classes around it and, you know, other things too. I enjoy 
lots of naturalists' endeavors, such as, you know, animal tracking and bird calls and that kind of thing. So, Cool. How about you, Sam? You've got classes? Yeah, I have a, a number of workshops uh, coming up this year. Some are weekend uh, workshops, and but there's also some shorter ones, and I'll, I'll be scheduling a few closer to the Twin Cities. Great. So you can find any, any of those on my website. And you also have a DVD, and one of the things I found funny about the DVD promo is that you talked about one of the best places to forage is an untended garden. Mm-hmm. And so talk about that a bit. Yeah, I mean, weedy plants... Uh, proportional to their the biomass of that ecosystem uh, tend to be very edible. Most garden weeds produce something that's edible. Uh, and so an, a poorly tended or untended garden or a recently disturbed piece of ground, like a dirt pile at a construction site, those kind of places are usually just covered with edible plants. If you want to find edible plants in any landscape, look for disturbance combined with nutrients and you're going to find food plants growing there. Yeah, so I mean in my yard I I have I get greens consistently pretty much from March till October, November. And so one of my favorite things is just go outside, grab whatever greens I feel like and scramble it with eggs. So do you have simple things that you do frequently that you just get a lot of food from? Yeah, I mean actually what you just described is is great. Um, you know Fried greens are such an easy way to incorporate greens into your diet. And for me, I mean, I, I love the bulky calorie staple foods like nuts and grains. But if you want to really easily add wild food to your diet and lots of nutrients, learn five to ten common leafy greens that are going to grow in your backyard. And I guarantee you there's at least ten edible species in your yard. And just incorporate that into easy recipes like fried onions with some greens in it and you can eat that as a side dish to almost any main course and it just packs an incredible nutritional punch and i think there's something about eating that food from the immediacy Uh, you pick it and you eat it within minutes of it being picked Mm -hmm. the ultimate freshness yeah yeah it's way fresher than anything you'll find at the store um or even going to the farmer's market you know things have been picked and stored and not to disparage the farmer's market, but um, <laughs> picking your own food is really great, and especially when it's a wild plant. I really think there's a great connection that happens there. Yeah, and I would love to, um, especially 20, this is the new year, is going into New Year's resolutions. This was the very first year that we got hazelnuts in our yard. Ooh. Ooh yeah. The squirrels didn't get them? Yeah, no, the squirrels <laughs> didn't get them. Maybe they haven't discovered it. It's the first year. But, okay. um, but just to try to move that around the city more, I mean, why not be planting more hazelnuts and more berries and, and, and doing the permaculture, as I said, through instead of the, the damaging grass, move into this more abundant... Yeah, yeah, I have some friends, um, well, one couple in particular that has a really beautiful, large permaculture yard, and, you know, it's something they've been doing for several years now, and it's awesome going up there and seeing, like, the pawpaws and the juneberries, and they have, like, kiwi vine and all this. (laughs) I'm like, this is awesome. (laughs) Like, I didn't even know this plant existed. Um, And, yeah, getting that diversity in your own yard is really great. How about you, Sam? How do we encourage the plants to grow that feed us, that we can feed, that we can support? Well, you know, I think it's pretty easy in almost any type of landscape. I mean, if anyone has a backyard, there's room for plants there. And there's when you're talking about wild vegetables, you can have something that can grow in any habitat type that you can find. So, I mean, semi-shade, full sun, heavy shade, there is always something appropriate, whether it's horrible sandy soil or the richest mucky soil or clay. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's always something that can do well there. Um, so, you know, create a, a small community in your backyard of, of native plants, and you're going to get wildlife using it. You're going to get insects using it. You're going to get beauty out of it. I mean, you know, some of these edible plants are utterly gorgeous. Um, you know, the sometimes it's called wild golden glow or cut leaf coneflower native to the Twin Cities area, super common, um, gorgeous yellow flowers in, in mid to late summer. And that produces edible greens from very, very early spring to early winter. It has mm. four flushes of leaves through the year. And, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a great one that anybody can have and beautify their yard and get food out of it. 
So where's the best place to find out more information? We're down to our last two minutes. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> best place. Or lots That's of places. Creepy. It's probably face-to-face with people. Um, going to the library and um, just getting out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sam's I mean, site. Sam's books are awesome. I've learned a lot from Sam in person um, when we went to traditional skills gatherings together. Well, yeah, we were both at the same one. Um, and yeah, Sam's books are incredible. There's other books that are similar, like books written from a, you know, more of a first person perspective. Um, and yeah, finding classes if you can. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Sam? <laughs> uh, you know, there's find the books that you like and, and just, just go out and do it. You know, I mean, I mean, just, just go out and spend time in nature and find a plant that catches your eye, figure out what it is. And there's a 50, 50 chance or better that it's a food plant. So just go learn a plant and then, and then find out if it's edible and some things you already know, like violets and dandelions, figure out how to use them. Um, you know, make it fun. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm biased. Of course, I think my books are pretty good. I tried, <laughs> I tried to cover each individual plant with a thoroughness that would make somebody feel comfortable going out and eating it for the first time, rather than having a really, really long list of things that I only have two sentences about. Um, but uh, there's Edible Wild Plants of the Prairie, written by ethnobotanist um, from Kansas, Kelly Kincher. Most of those plants are found in Minnesota, and that's a really great resource, really well-researched. There's a lot of good books out there. And uh, yeah, you, then you also have Wild Plants, Incredible Wild Edibles, 36 Plants That Can Change Your Life. That's, yeah, that's your so third my, there's book. No, there's no overlap in the plants my books cover. It's really just one big book, but I had to split it up because I couldn't you know, start with a thousand-page book. <laughs> so um, you know, I just had to, to split it up, but all three of them are pretty applicable to the Midwest. Yeah, and if I could do some shameless self-promotion. Sure, like go for it. My website, fourseasonforaging.com. I have a blog with articles and videos about identifying different plants. There's recipes on there. There's, um, yeah, lots of, of stuff. <laughs> lots of stuff. And, and how fun. I mean, how basic and fun. Let's, let's do some foraging. I hope it's a, an increasing trend. That's the one question I wanted to do. Are more and more people foraging? I think so. You think so? What do you think, Sam? More people foraging? It seems like it. I don't Yay. know if I'd say more and more, but more. More, more. Okay. Yeah, there, there seems to be an uptick in, in trends. Uh, All right. Well, you've been listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota.